Chapter Eight of Garibaldi and the Making of Italy by George Macaulay Trevelyan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Entry into Naples. Venu e Gelubardo, Venu e Lupubel, Neapolitan Song of 1860. The flight of King Francis from Naples on September 6th was but the final catastrophe in a process of dissolution which had set in with the news of the fall of Palermo and the consequent proclamation of constitutional rights in June. Freedom of the press and person had effectively and instantly broken up the machinery of repression. The police had, in Liborio Romano's conjuring hands, been turned in a few days into an instrument of liberalism. The king had handed over the civil administration to his enemies, and had gained nothing in return except the diplomatic support of France that failed him at every crisis. At home, the Constitution won over to him a few individuals, but no class or party. The decadent nobility of the capital, the peasants of certain districts in the northern provinces, and the bulk of the army remained loyal, not because of the Constitution, but in spite of it. Everyone else was looking to Piedmont. The perfidy of his ancestors divided King Francis from his people. Remembering the fate of the constitutions of 1820 and 1848, the citizens refused to enroll themselves on the electoral lists because in case of redaction the appearance of their names on the register might be used against them as evidence of treason. And when Garibaldi in August came marching up through the constituencies, all talk of holding elections for Parliament ceased. The king suspected his ministers, though most of them were passively loyal. Above all, and with good reason, he hated Don Laborio Romano. But Don Laborio, like Lafayette in the autumn of 1789, was the man of the hour, with whom neither court nor people could dispense. He had at his beck and call the police, the National Guard of respectable burghers, and the Camorra of criminals. So King Francis had to endure him throughout all July and August, first as police minister only, and then as minister of the interior also. In the latter half of August, Don Laborio held confidential interviews on the subject of coming events with the dictator's friends in Naples, with the Piedmontese, Admiral Persano, and with the king's uncle, the Count of Syracuse, who had already openly declared for a change of dynasty. Persano wrote to Cavour that Don Laborio was helping the cause of national unity so far as he was permitted by his very delicate situation as minister of Francis II. His object, however, was not actively to compass the destruction of his master, which he regarded as already certain, but to prevent the fall of the dynasty from involving in its ruin the public peace and safety. For this reason, as well as for the satisfaction of his own vanity, he had accepted office in June, and for this reason he determined to remain in power during the days or hours that must elapse between the fall of Francis II and the establishment of any new form of government. If he forced the king to accept his resignation, the Camorra would, he believed, break loose in the great city, which contained a larger proportion of criminally disposed persons than any other in Europe. The royal troops would begin to fight with the National Guard, and disasters of the most appalling character might occur. The respectable part of the citizens took the same view, 
begging don laborio and his colleagues to retain office under the crown at any sacrifice to their own dignity or honour and those who knew best the naples of those days were the least inclined to deny the claim afterwards put forward by the discredited politician that he saved the capital from destruction meanwhile the cavourian agents were striving in vain to precipitate a revolution villa marina the piedmontese minister at naples and admiral persano who arrived there with his fleet from sicily at the beginning of august lent their aid to finzi and visconti venosta to nisco d'ayala and nunziante in their attempts to win over the army and incite the civilians to resolute action but the army remained loyal in spite of the propaganda of the popular general nunziante among his old companions in arms and in spite of the blandishments of piedmontese bersaglieri some companies of the latter were allowed to land off persano's ships and to show themselves in the streets partly in order to encourage the population to revolt and partly in order to fraternize with the neapolitan troops who replied by breaking their heads the citizens were more sympathetic but not more active than the soldiers the neapolitans did not see the use of doing at the risk of their own skins what garibaldi was coming to do for them moreover the monsignan committee of action which contained the bolder and more energetic spirits had resolved to wait for the dictator's arrival fearing that if they rose before he appeared on the scene naples would fall at once into the hands of cavour while the cavourian committee of order which would fain have seen a revolution effected while garibaldi was still on his way consisted of moderate men unfitted by nature to initiate a revolt the motives of cavour's policy throughout august are relatively clear to those who will read them in the light of two established facts first that he had in the last days of july persuaded russell to permit garibaldi's passage of the straits and secondly that he had as early as august first made up his mind to invade the papal provinces with the piedmontese army his desire was without more delay to possess himself of naples and to forestall a garibaldian dictatorship while at the same time he would invade the papal states and so link up the north and south of the peninsula in one free monarchy it was not only because he feared that the revolution in naples would perhaps misfire without the help of the guerrilla that he had persuaded russell to let him cross from sicily to the mainland even after he had taken this step as a measure of insurance in case of his own failure he continued to work for the overthrow of francis the second through his own agents and since time was needed for this experiment he was not sorry to see the dictator kept waiting three weeks at the straits that is the same reason why in the days of august he wrote to admiral persano do not help the passage of general garibaldi on to the continent but rather try to delay him by indirect means as far as possible when the dictator had safely crossed and was beginning his march through calabria cavour caused arms to be landed at salerno and distributed among the rebels of the south in order to open the way for garibaldi's advance but at the same time he made a last effort to obtain possession of naples for his own party writing to villa marina on august twenty seventh do all you can to avoid a garibaldian dictatorship on which you count too much 
he instructed Persano to accept the dictatorship if it was offered to him. Even now, Cavour shrank from the one sure method of avoiding the Garibaldian regime in Naples, which he so much dreaded, namely, an open declaration of war by Piedmont on King Francis, because, as he told Villa Marina, that would compromise us altogether with Europe. By Europe, he meant most of all Napoleon, with whom he was at that moment secretly negotiating for leave to attack the Papal territory. A few days later he saw that he had lost the race for Naples. On August 30th, while the dictator was receiving the surrender of Gio's 10,000 at Soveria, Cavour wrote to Villa Marina, acknowledging defeat, and bidding him abandon all thought of forming a government at Naples independent of Garibaldi. You must act frankly in unison with him, trying only to get the fleet and the forts into our hands. Although Cavour failed actually to overturn Francis II before the arrival of Garibaldi, the prestige of the royal family and of the royalist party was rapidly melting away throughout the whole of August. The National Guard, the police, the citizens and the Piedmontese agents were all in a tacit conspiracy against the king and his soldiers, and whenever any of the latter gave vent to their feelings by rioting in the streets, their bad discipline was pointed to as proof that Francis II intended to destroy the Constitution by military force. A series of half-hearted reactionary plots were unearthed by Don Laborio's police, and their details published to the further discomfiture of the king. In one of these conspiracies his uncle, the Count of Aquila, was supposed to be implicated. Aquila had been for weeks an ardent constitutionalist, but he had rejoined the altruist royalists in the hope, it was said, of displacing his incompetent nephew in their affections. On August 14th, the ministers succeeded in driving him into exile, under cover of sending him on a foreign mission. On August 20th, Don Laborio presented to the king his famous memorandum, in which he tried to persuade his master to retire from the kingdom for some time, leaving as regent a minister who would inspire police confidence. In this way alone, wrote Don Laborio, could the horrors of civil war be averted, seeing that mutual confidence between the people and their prince has become not only difficult, but impossible. Four days after Francis had received this broad hint from his principal minister of state, he was made the target of a public letter from his uncle of Syracuse, in which the count exhorted his nephew to sacrifice his throne on behalf of the glorious idea of Italian unity. Such language from a prince of the blood produced a very general impression that all was now lost. Syracuse had shown the letter to Persano in his flagship five days before it appeared. The ever-shifting intentions and intrigues of the king and his many rival counselors during the last fortnight of Bourbon rule in Naples are known to us at present chiefly through the narratives of Laborio Romano and of General Pianel and his wife. These represent the constitutional party alone, and even so are inconsistent with each other on several important points. Unless other documents come to light, the historian will never be able to trace confidently and in detail the story of those days of cowardice, treachery, confusion, and panic. Only the outline of events is clear. 
it was agreed by all parties in the palace that the presence of the king himself in the field was necessary if the demoralized troops were ever to face garibaldi again it was also common ground that the capital should be spared and should not like palermo be made the scene of conflict the main division of opinion between constitutionalists and reactionaries arose on the question whether the king should go south to defend the capital in the plains of eboli and the mountains of salerno or whether he should abandon naples and retire north with all the loyal troops in the kingdom behind the line of the volturno in the latter case he could base his new position on the strongly fortified towns of capua and gaeta which might prove for him what the quadrilateral had been to austria in eighteen forty eight a rock of refuge on which the rebels would vainly waste their strength until the time was ripe for a royalist counter-attack and a triumphal return to the capital against garibaldi who had no siege guns and no siege science the plan had a fair likelihood of success as subsequent events showed it was the political as well as a military move for the retreat northwards would mean the abandonment of the tricolor in favor of the old white flag of the bourbons and bearing of the constitution and a frank return to reaction on the bomba model the removal of the soldiers from the capital northwards would enable them to indulge their loyalist sentiments freely in a more favorable atmosphere don laborio and his colleagues would remain in naples while the queen dowager and her reactionary clique were already at gaeta waiting for the king the reactionary peasants of the volturno district were already threatening the lives of the local liberals the papal border and the papal army were close in the rear of gaeta it may therefore be supposed that the advice to retreat behind the volturno originated from the king's secret advisers of the ultra royalist party as early as august twenty seventh his constitutional ministers found that he was meditating such a retreat but his purposes wavered from day to day and from hour to hour and the only sound of the approaching footsteps of garibaldi could bring him to the point of a resolve on august twenty ninth his ministers for their part urged him to go south and head the troops at salerno in defense of the capital and the constitution though it is difficult to suppose that they wished him a complete victory on the same day the reactionaries headed by count trapani another of the king's uncles were hatching a plot to arrest the ministers the loyalist proclamation which was to have been published as the watchword of this coup d'etat was seized overnight by don laborio's police and produced at the council board by the indignant men against whom it had been aimed king francis red with mingled anger and embarrassment gasped out that he agreed with much in the proclamation and gave his ministers to understand that he was to some extent in the confidence of the conspirators who had plotted their arrest the ministry who had already attempted to resign now pressed with somewhat greater earnestness for leave to be quit of the royal service but even now the king refused to part with them on the ground that he could find no one else willing to form a cabinet and when their friends of the national guard warned them that anarchy would break loose in the streets as soon as their resignation became known they consented all except pianel to continue a while longer in office 
affairs remained in this suspended condition until the night of september fourth when paired's telegrams the supposed presence of garibaldi at eboli and the reported desertion of caldarelli's troops brought the king's irresolution to an end and gave him the requisite energy to carry out his plan of retreat to gaeta accordingly on september fifth francis the second announced his approaching departure to the ministers the mayor and the officers of the national guard to whom he committed the charge of keeping order in the capital during his absence he spoke without bitterness of which there seems to have been singularly little in his mild and foolish nature he excused himself for going but your joe i mean our joe is at the gates he said to these men whom he well knew to be preparing in their hearts an enthusiastic reception for garibaldi on the same day he and his brave bavarian queen went for their last drive in the streets of naples they sat in an open carriage like simple private citizens and the passers-by who took off their hats to them in silence observed that they were laughing and talking together as usual the clumsy shyness of the king's demeanor to his wife which had stressed her in the early months of their marriage had now to a large extent passed away a few yards from the palace at the busy entrance of the chaya their equipage was brought to a stand by a block in the traffic and they were forced to wait some moments close to a gang of workmen who were taking down the bourbon lilies from over the shop front of the chemist to the royal family francis pointed out to maria sophia the too significant nature of the men's task and husband and wife turned to each other and laughed next morning september sixth the walls of naples were placarded with the king's proclamation of farewell to his people in restrained and dignified language he protested against the way in which he was being driven from his capital in spite of his constitutional concessions and announced that he hoped to return if the luck of war and politics favored his claims in the course of the day the main part of the army marched out of the town by the capua road indignantly refusing de Alla's invitation to fraternize with the national guard and desert to the side of italy a garrison of six or ten thousand was left behind to guard the fortress of the capital but their commanding officers were strictly ordered by francis the second to remain neutral and to shed no blood nothing was said to them about surrender or evacuation although if they were attacked they would only hold the forts by shedding blood which would transgress both the letter and the spirit of the king's commands it is probable that he had not clearly thought out what he wished them to do but it may fairly be said that he adhered to an honorable manner to his decision not to inflict the horrors of war on naples and the rumor that he ordered the castles to bombard the town after he had gone was pure fiction at four in the afternoon the constitutional ministers were summoned to the palace to take their leave of the king there was no party in the state that wished them to accompany him to gaeta they found him courteous and cheerful buoyed up by excitement at great change and by relief after long tension he said to don laborio half in jest half in earnest don libo look out for your head referring no doubt to his own prospective return sire was the unabashed reply i will do my best to keep it on my shoulders the ministers were not invited to say farewell to the queen 
shortly before six in the evening francis and maria sophia walked down arm in arm from the palace to the dock which lay close under their windows both were composed and cheerful the queen left her wardrobe behind saying to her maids we shall come back again the hundreds of neapolitan grandees and officials who had fattened on the court for twenty years past were notable by their absence but the faithful captain cristulo received his sovereigns on board the masagero a small ship of one hundred and sixty horsepower and four guns as she steamed through the crowded port of naples she ran up a signal for the rest of the fleet to follow but not one vessel stirred the captains were already in league with persano and the prevailing sentiment of the men and still more of the officers favored united italy the little ship shunned by all her fellows carried the last of the bourbons for ever out of sight of vesuvius and the bay at dusk she passed the island of nisida where gladstone had visited bomba's victims a few minutes later off proshita she met another section of the fleet signalled again and was again disobeyed all night she ploughed her solitary way under the stars through a tranquil sea in the interregnum of twenty hours that followed the king's departure was outwardly the quietest but inwardly the most anxious day that naples had passed for several weeks knowing that the bourbon garrisons were still in the four great castles nuovo san elmo del ovo and carmine the population stayed indoors until something decisive occurred fortunately the authorities took the right steps laborio romano still continued to act and to sign himself as minister of police and the interior though under which king seemed uncertain his continued presence at the head of affairs helped to preserve public confidence and peace he sent at once for the mayor prince d'alessandria and for de soge the general of the national guard and agreed with them that garibaldi must enter naples as soon as fitting preparations had been made for his reception and as soon as he had troops enough at his side to ensure his safety against the bourbon garrison within an hour of the king's departure two officers of the national guard were sent off to salerno on what was then the only railroad south of the capital it ran along the coast past vesuvius turned inland by pompeii and ended at vietri two miles outside salerno on their way the two officers met a number of bavarian mercenaries retreating northwards from the abandoned positions of salerno and cava at salerno which they reached by ten at night they found the streets lighted up and groups of people steered cheering disturbedly garibaldi had made his entry and had gone to rest the envoys reported to cosenz the flight of the king and announced the intention of the mayor and the commander of the national guard to come from naples early next morning garibaldi when he awoke on september seventh telegraphed to don laborio as soon as the mayor and commanding officer of the national guard arrive from naples i will come to you i am waiting for them first don laborio wired back to the invincible general garibaldi dictator of the two sicilies laborio romano minister of the interior and police naples await your arrival with the greatest impatience to salute you as the redeemer of italy and to place in your hands the power of state and her own destinies 
i await your further orders and am with unlimited respect for you invincible dictator liborio romano this exchange of telegrams barely preceded the arrival at salerno of the mayor and general who were at once ushered into the presence of garibaldi he was surprised to hear from them that naples did not expect him that day and expressed annoyance at the suggestion of any need to erect triumphal arches and to make official preparations for his entry the more serious arguments for delay were the presence of the bavarians on the railway line between salerno and the capital the garrisons in the four castles with cannon trained on the heart of the city and the absence of garibaldi's own army his nearest force tours fifteen hundred were still forty-eight hours behind and the rest of his twenty thousand men were scattered along the roads of basilicata and calabria at distances varying from four to fourteen days march his staff officers bertani and the emissaries from naples all besought him to wait at least till tours force came up until the departure of the bavarians for capua was completed but garibaldi hearing some talk of difficulties and dangers in the capital swept all this aside naples is in danger he said rising to put an end to the conference we must go there to-day we must go this minute his friends were horror-struck but they knew better than to resist his decision was approved by the event and indeed hesitation on his part might have dispelled the illusion of his invincible power and compromised his peaceful occupation of the city and thus he was able to enter as he wished not like a conqueror surrounded by an army but as a deliverer welcomed and protected by the people after dispatching a telegram to the capital announcing their arrival for midday the dictator and his party drove out of salerno at exactly half-past nine in the morning of friday the seventh of september amid another scene of frantic enthusiasm at the terminus station of vietri they boarded a special train which was soon packed to overflowing first by garibaldi his staff and personal friends and then by a score of the so-called national guard of salerno and any one else who could wedge himself through a door or climb onto a carriage roof during the journey the liberator was calm and quietly radiant so was that other fine soldier cosense who smiled behind his spectacles at the thought that he would in a few hours see his mother from whom he had been separated by twelve years of exile the rest of the company in the train which included palmerston's secretary in his red shirt w g clark the public orator of cambridge university captain forbes r n and edwin james q c were for the most part in boisterous and noisy spirits the italians kept singing over and over again siamo italiani giovanni fresci contro i tedesche volume pugnar viva l'italia viva la unione viva garibaldi e la libertà at nocera the enemy's bavarians in train for capua were shunted to let the victors pass a little before they reached pompeii garibaldi who sat by the window on the side towards the mountain said look out we shall soon see vesuvius when its cone and streamer hove in sight cosense was visibly moved by the familiar form of the mountains of his boyhood it was a day of scorching southern sun 
beyond pompeii the train made slow progress for even an express south of naples for between torre annunziata and portici the line was occupied by tens of thousands of the inhabitants of that densely populated coast fishermen who left their nets on the beach swarthy fellows naked to the waist who had been winnowing corn on the flat roofs of the houses priests and monks leading their flocks men women and children in countless multitudes rushed shouting on to the line and swayed to and fro round the train in their attempts to see and touch garibaldi in his carriage the mayor of naples and the staff officers were arranging the route which was to be taken in the streets of the capital it was decided to go by the centre of town and not by the quayside lest they should needlessly provoke the bourbon garrison by dragging the triumphal procession under the muzzles of the cannon at the carmine and castle nuovo beyond portici the train was stopped by a naval officer who forced his way into the carriage in a state of frenzy crying out to the dictator where are you going to the bourbon troops have trained their cannon on the station of naples garibaldi replied unmoved bother the cannon when the people are receiving us like this there are no cannon and ordered the train to proceed as they went forward again the commandant of the national guard questioned the young officer and it soon appeared that he was referring only to the cannon in the carmine castle close to the station a danger which they had already taken into account in eighteen sixty there were only two short railways in the whole neapolitan kingdom connecting capua and vietri respectively with the capital at that time both these lines terminated in a small junction some few hundred yards nearer to the sea than the present central station of naples on the morning of september seventh the timid silence of the streets was broken by count ricciardi who drove along the toledo standing up in his carriage with the italian flag and shouting out to the citizens that they should assemble at the station to greet the dictator who would arrive there at midday but most men preferred to wait and see if ricciardi's prophecy would be fulfilled before they committed themselves in face of the garrison and it was a crowd of relatively moderate proportions that assembled at the appointed hour and place don liborio however and the national guard were there to represent the official world an hour and a half passed by until at one thirty the train was seen to approach and the liberator stepped out onto the platform as fast as the news that he had come spread through naples the whole city awoke as from sleep myriads seemed to spring out of the ground and before don liborio had finished reading an address of welcome to which no one even pretended to listen an irresistible multitude stormed the station swept aside every official barrier swamped the lines of the national guard and took garibaldi to itself don liborio was whirled off on the flood and could not fight his way to the coveted seat in the dictator's carriage cosense who had an equally good right to be next to his chief was borne down another eddy but secured a horse and rode off to see his mother a few minutes fierce battling garibaldi found refuge in an open carriage into which bertani and a half a dozen of his old fighting companions managed to climb in after him such fine old heads with whitened beards and all their red shirts covered with purple stains like english hunting coats which have been through sundry squire traps 
as a lady wrote who watched the simple procession pass. At the back of the carriage clung a Neapolitan artist named Salazaro, holding over their heads an enormous tricolor with the horse of Naples on one side and the Lion of Venice on the other. In this fashion, without official escort or guard of any kind, did a son of the people, to use Garibaldi's own words, accompanied by a few of his friends who called themselves his aides-de-camp, enter the proud capital acclaimed by its five hundred thousand inhabitants, whose fierce and irresistible will paralyzed an entire army. According to the official plan, Garibaldi was to have entered Naples by the center of the city, in order to avoid the forts. But outside the station, in what is now the Corso Garibaldi, the mob turned to the left instead of to the right, and in another minute they were passing under the muzzles of the loaded cannon of the carmine. The soldiers were seen looking out at the carriage and its occupants, whom they could have blasted to pieces by moving a finger. Garibaldi stood up, folded his arms, and looked them straight in the face. Some of them saluted, and no one fired a shot. It is true that they were only acting in accordance with the specific orders of the king, but it is a matter of deep congratulation that no one in that unscrupulous and ill-disciplined force was tempted loyally to disobey. The mob had now reached the water's edge, and as the carriage turned to the right round the corner of the carmine, its occupants were greeted by the most amazing sight and sound. For a mile long, the broad quayside was packed by as many of the half-million inhabitants of Naples as could find standing room, and all at first sight of Garibaldi broke out in one protracted yell of welcome. Along the north side of the quay, lined by tall commercial buildings, every window was astir with faces and waving arms fluttering handkerchiefs. On the other side, where lay the great port, crowded with shipping of all nations, Every mast was loaded with sailors shouting or singing songs of welcome in chorus. In middle distance, far overhead, the tyrant's castle of San Elmo looked down upon the scene. When the procession first left the station, Garibaldi had sat for the most part apparently unmoved, but from time to time he lifted his hat and smiled, as it were, with the eyes rather than the lips. But as they began to pass along the quay, he stood up, writes Sassio of the Thousand, who was with him in the carriage. His head was uncovered, and his face, in token of reverence, betrayed deep emotion. The carriage moved at a foot's pace on the long, open quay, and before it reached the shadow of Castle Novo, his bared features seemed to his companions in the carriage to have bronzed visibly under the scorching rays of the sun. "'Did you ever see such a triumph?' asked Bertani of Zasio. "'No, not seen it,' replied the veteran. "'But I have often dreamt of it for the chief.' At length they reached the castle Nuovo, sinister of aspect with its tall round towers of black tufa. Here again they might have been blown to pieces, but here again the enemy's sentinels saluted, and the guard turned out to do him honour. Thence he was carried along the side of the palace, also occupied by a Bourbon regiment. The Forestaria, an annex of the palace used for the entertainment of court guests, was the goal of the procession. It stood on one side of the Largo San Francesco di Paola, 
an immense open space which was packed tight with spectators. From the windows of the forest area, Garibaldi looked out sideways on the front of the palace a few yards off, with the enemy's soldiers in the gateway, and straight below him on the heads of the vast multitude, whom he addressed as follows. "'You have a right to exalt this day, which is the beginning of a new epoch, not only for you, but for all Italy, of which Naples forms the fairest portion. It is indeed a glorious day, and holy.' that on which a people passes from the yoke of servitude to the rank of a free nation i thank you for this welcome not only for myself but in the name of all italy which your aid will render free and united his speech showed clearly that it was of the union of italy that he was thinking as much as of the liberation of naples from the foresteria he was taken to the cathedral where he was again almost smothered by the embraces of men and women. His fighting friar, Sicilian Pantaleo, conducted the service, and the terrified canon showed him the relics of St. Januarius, on the virtues of which he maintained a judicious silence. Thence he was taken to the Palazzo di Agri, now chosen as his permanent headquarters. It is a fine private mansion, standing conspicuously halfway up the mile-long toledo at the debauchment of another important street so that its balconies looked down both thoroughfares the people filled in endless procession up and down the two streets while garibaldi showed himself to them on one of the highest balconies of the tall palace the inhabitants of naples were now in full delirium gyrating through the streets like the dance of all the devils on the witch's sabbath true joy at liberation from tyranny moved the greater part of them the feverish desire for the excitement of an unexampled festa drove on the rest many of whom who had been bourbonists a few months before and would be bourbonists again if the king returned men and women waved swords which they would never wield in earnest and brandished daggers which they were more accustomed to employ. As the night wore on, the various cries of Viva Garibardo, Galibar, Galibord, were finally shortened into Viva Bord. When the voice gave out, a single finger was held up in token of the Union of Italy. Even after the first rage was spent, the Saturnalia continued intermittently for three days and nights in the thousand noisome valleys which composed the Naples of that era. But in the Toledo, while the crowd on the first evening was shouting under the Palazzo di Agri for the dictator to reappear, a red shirt stepped out on the balcony and laid his cheek on his hand in token that his chief was sleeping. Elie dorme whispered the vast multitude and dispersed in silence during the rest of that night's carnival the centre of the city was left as noiseless and deserted as the streets of pompeii End of chapter eight